Um, <clears throat> so if you have been with us for the last few weeks and or months, you may remember that we did a series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is the uh, thing that we all recited together as part of our service, part of our worship to the Lord, declaring our faith. In the Psalms, it says, I will declare your wondrous deeds in the midst of the sanctuary or in the midst of the assembly. And so it's part of our worship to to recite the Apostles' Creed. We don't recite it in a formulaic sense, thinking that, you know, when we get done with the Apostles' Creed, we've earned another merit badge or unlocked a, another reward, if you will. This isn't a uh, Foursquare-style uh, church, and not Foursquare Gospel, the Foursquare check-in thing. That's not, that's not why we say the creeds. That's not why we, that's not why we declare our faith before the Lord and before uh, our brothers and sisters. It's actually part of worship. And so we spent that entire series examining what is it what is it that we're saying when we recite the creed? What are the theological truths, the precious things that God has done in history uh, that are magnificent in our eyes? What are those things that we're saying and why are they important? And so after we got done with the Apostles' Creed series, uh, we, for the last few weeks, have been going through the book of Acts. And the reason we're doing that is it was timely. We noted that we celebrated Ascension, the Ascension of Christ, which is Acts 1, and Pentecost the next week, which is Acts 2. And being that we're going into a missional time, an evangelistic focus in the summer, I thought it would be helpful for us to examine what the book of Acts shows us as the pattern for the way a church is established and the way that people come to hear about Christ and what happens to them when they when they do that. So uh, the last few weeks, we saw how both Peter and John, Stephen and Philip, all proclaimed a gospel that had a number of elements that were very important. And we saw one of them was uh, a warning of judgment. That is, they gave a warning to the people uh, in Israel that God was going to judge them, uh, just as we today continue to give a warning to unbelievers that they are living against God and that God has fixed a day on which all the earth will be judged by his servant Jesus. And we we noted how not only did it include a warning of judgment, but it also included a claim of the exclusivity of Christ. That is, Christ alone is the way by which men are saved, by faith in his name, turning from dead works to serve the living God through the name of Jesus Christ. We also looked at how their gospel had a history to it. It was a what we called a history-informed gospel. That gospel that Peter and and uh, Stephen and Philip presented to the the Jews dealt with them, uh, co- convincing them that they had been unfaithful throughout history, and that God had chosen different patriarchs among them, made covenants to them, and yet the people of Israel had broken those covenants. So, so there's those three or four things, the, the history-informed gospel, a warning of judgment, and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the last element is a clear description of what you should do if you have heard the message with faith and wish to follow Jesus Christ. And every single time it is be baptized for the repentance of your sins and turn to God. And at one point, Peter says, so that times of refreshing may come. 
Peter's opinion was that if the city of Jerusalem would turn to Christ, that times a, a time of refreshing would come to the city and they would be uh, they would be refreshed from the presence of the Lord. The Proverbs over and over again say, when the righteous uh, rejoice, a city is made glad. As in, when, when righteous people serve God, it brings a blessing to the city. And so the ramifications, the implications of what was happening in Jerusalem, according to Peter, was if you continue in the faith and, and spread this message of what God has done through Jesus Christ, that this city will be blessed. So we covered Stephen, we covered Philip, we talked about how as young men we need to rise up and take those places in the church of, of service, that is the office of the deacon, something that we can do to uh, prepare ourselves. And then finally, uh, we come to Saul. And this passage of what happens with Saul is a very important passage. Uh, over and over again, we had seen how groups of people had been saved. And once with the eunuch, we saw how an individual was saved. But here with the conversion of Saul, this is the most concise and concrete picture of what it looks like for someone to be an idolater who is a hater of God, a religious person, and have that person go from from that way of life being converted to uh, a merciful, loving person who wishes to bless and to bring about to bring about good through the proclamation of the gospel. And so Saul had not just in this in this chapter Saul had not just experienced Christ in some way and gotten saved if you will and then just done nothing with his life. It was a complete reversal. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at these elements in this chapter. First, there was a repentance from the heart. Now, uh that repentance takes place very quickly in this account, but it was from the heart. He encountered a baptism of water and of the Holy Spirit. He begins to proclaim the gospel, a complete, concise gospel, one that we'll look at in a few minutes that says proves that Jesus is the Christ. He begins to make disciples in the city of Damascus. And then finally, he begins to fellowship with the church. These are all elements of what it means for someone to convert to Christ. And the reason we're talking about this again is in the context of our church beginning to do evangelical mission to to the neighborhoods around us. When we share the gospel with other with other people who have not yet heard the gospel, these are the types of things that we should be expecting to take place and be ready to help make place or uh, take place. As in, when Philip is asked by the eunuch, "What should I do?" Uh, or look, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? Philip got it. He understood that the eunuch had converted in his heart and there wasn't any waiting period or need of a trial or something like this. The eunuch, Philip could tell the eunuch was changed from the heart and he was baptized that day. Over and over again, this happens in the book of Acts. It's not just a sinner's prayer. There's something important about water baptism. There's something very important about the baptism of the Holy Spirit to empower someone to continue to live a life that is marked by the gospel. And so this is what we should be ready to do uh, as we're uh, sharing the gospel to this neighborhood. Uh, we're going to look at these three things in this passage. We're going to look at uh, what this passage tells about us uh, about our union with Christ, that is how Christ binds himself to us. We're going to look at the 
the narrative, the poetry in, in this story of how Paul went from blindness to being able to see. And then finally, we're going to look at the gospel proclamation and the fruit of Paul's uh, ministry. So um, with that context, let's get started. Immediately in this chapter, we see that Saul is a complete heathen. Even though he's a Jew, um, he's a, later on in the scriptures, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. That is, he was of the most prime religious crop of his day. And yet it says at the beginning of the chapter that Saul was mur- breathing out murders and threats against the disciples. Now, the book of First uh, John describes those who hate their brothers as murderers and children of the devil. And so Saul, even though he was a religious man, even though he was a Pharisee, it proves that he was actually a child of the devil before his conversion. He may have known some things about God, but the evidence, the fruit of his life as to whether he was a lover of God or not, he was not a lover of God. He was a murderer. He was someone who was trying to imprison people. And in this conversion story, we see something very beautiful. At verse one, it says he was murdering threats against the disciples of the Lord. But then it goes on to describe in verse four, the encounter that Jesus has with Saul. He says, why are you persecuting? Not the disciples. He says, why are you persecuting me? This is a precious theological truth that Christ has bound himself to his church in such a way that whenever evil comes against the church, whenever it comes against you, when you're proclaiming the gospel or standing up for the faith, standing against the cultural corruption around you, when those forces come against you, you are not alone, but rather Christ is there with you in the moment. It says over and over again here, not not only why are you persecuting me, but then Jesus makes it very plain. He says it again. The use of repetition always enforces an idea. Saul recognizes the Lord's authority, but he doesn't know who the Lord is. He, he sees this guy and calls him Lord, uh, probably the Revelation 1 bright, shiny Jesus with a, cloth of, uh, a robe of white and a golden sash, eyes filled with fire. I mean, it's a terrifying idea to see Christ Uh, and not be his friend at the time. And so Saul sees Christ, and he's terrified. He recognizes Christ, at least in the form of authority. He says, who are you, Lord? And he then identifies, he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Jesus makes the identification, the revelation of who he is to this person called Saul. That identification, that revelation of who Jesus is, is tied up in his fellowship with the believers in their suffering. So from this, we know that when Peter and John were on trial, the religious leaders were not simply coming against Peter and John. They were coming against Christ himself. When Stephen was being stoned, they were hurling stones at Christ. When Philip was being rallied against or railed against, it was Christ there with him. It was not just simply those men on their own, though filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus being absent. Jesus has come to them, and by his Spirit, he has made good on the promise, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Many people think that's a a prophecy by Jesus to talk about the end of the age. And yes, there is a true fulfillment that Jesus will return to this earth and come to be with us in the flesh, God in the flesh with us here. But 
at the same time, he has not left you an orphan already. He has come to you and is near you by the presence of the, the Holy Spirit. And so when you are persecuted for your faith, you should take heart. You should know that Christ is with you in the midst of the suffering. Moving on from this idea that Christ is with his believers, uh, we see in this passage an extremely beautiful thing that takes place. Again, I'm trying to train us in how to read the Bible and to mine the depths of it for seeing the glory of God. It is not enough to read the Bible and and check off your to-do list. Okay, I got Mark 4 done, and then tomorrow I got my Mark 5 done, and then Mark 6. That's not the way in which you should read the scripture. You should read the scripture armed with the ability to understand what it says and to see the glory of God through its literature, having your mind opened up to understand what it means by the Holy Spirit. That's the goal of reading your Bible. It is not to simply maintain some sort of spiritual discipline. And it's, I'm convinced the more uh, that you can see the beautiful things that are in the scripture, the more you will desire to read the scripture. There are a thousand distractions in today's culture of entertainment, other things that we can do, substances, foods, experiences. You know, I think of, of just the thrill of this, there's a new ride at Cedar Point. And instead of everybody being in a line, now everyone's out in a row. So you don't have anyone in front of you to kind of like anticipate where the ride's going. I, I think of the thrill of, of a roller coaster. And then I think of, the, of where my heart is towards seeing God's glory in the scriptures. Seeing how good God is in his dealings with mankind. And I'm just, I'm torn. And I don't want to be torn. I want to be fully convinced. And I want you to be fully convinced. I want you to be fully convinced that the scripture is better than any movie that you've seen. That the parallels, word pictures, and themes which weave through every page of the scripture are better than any movie you could watch. There's a movie coming out in the fall called Ender's Game. And if you, if you know me, I'm a computer scientist. And I like, I like nerdy stuff. Uh, I have to, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to Ender's Game, but I really, I really hope at the same time in my heart of hearts that I'm looking forward to, you know, Ephesians and I'm looking forward to seeing the extreme warnings of judgment in Isaiah or something like that. It's a thrilling book. And I think that if we see these things in them more and more, we'll, we'll want to look deeper and harder for them. So after persecuting the church, Saul, uh, at the beginning, we, we noted how he was a murderer, he was breathing out threats, yet he saw himself as being a righteous person, okay? So Saul was firmly convinced in his mind that he was doing God's will. The Jews at that time had seen the Christians as an offshoot of Judaism, as a heretical branch that should be ended. And yet Saul is in a state of spiritual blindness, he doesn't see who Christ is. He doesn't know the truth about God. Jesus says that if you do not come to me, you cannot come to the Father. And so it's clear that Saul did not know the Father because he hated Christ. And so Saul at this point is spiritually blind yet can see in the natural. But when he sees Christ, everything is completely flipped 
in Saul's life. He goes from not being able to see in the spiritual to being able to see in the spiritual. And he goes from being being able to see in the natural, that is with his natural eyes, to being totally blind. The revelation of Jesus was so glorious, bright, and full of wonder and awe that Saul literally was covered with scales over his eyes. Now, I'm not going to speculate as to whether this was cataracts because Jesus's UV, uh, UVA and UVB rays were just too much. But there is something spiritual and, and miraculous here that's going on. Saul was blinded in the natural upon seeing Christ. And so Saul recognizes the Lord's authority, but at the vision of Christ, his spiritual blindness gets taken away. His natural blindness uh, comes on him. And so then he goes to Damascus. It says, Saul rose from the ground, eight, eight through nine. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Do you see the beauty of this literature here? Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Jesus describes the sign that's given to the wicked generation of of his day as the sign of Jonah. They asked Jesus for a sign. By what, by what authority are you doing these miracles? And he says to them, no sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. But they didn't understand what he meant. What Jesus meant by the sign of Jonah was the miracle of his resurrection. For three days and for three nights, Jesus got, went into the earth. Uh, he went into a tomb and he neither ate nor drank. He was, as it were, in the belly of the earth. And the sign of Jonah is a prophetic sign to say the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. That was what the story of Jonah was about. Jonah didn't want to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet he was told by God to go to Nineveh. And Jonah, being hard in heart, said, no, I won't go because I know that God, you're a good and merciful God, and you're going to grant repentance to the Ninevites. Now, that's an intense thing for a prophet of the Lord to admit before the Lord, I'm not going to go because I know you're a good God, and I know you'll grant repentance to the Ninevites. And we here in Israel are the true religious stock of, of faith. This is the exact same thing that Jesus does in his death and resurrection. He completes the sign of Jonah. And in fact, it's actually the case in the book of John that Jesus knows it's time for him to go to the cross when the Greeks begin to look for him in the city of Jerusalem. And so Saul, in the same way, goes through this. He, he wasn't present for the crucifixion. He didn't see it in the same way, but in a, in a beautiful way, he himself experienced the sign of Jonah. He was in a dark place. He was blind. He neither ate nor drank. And in that time, he reflects on who Christ is. But at the same time as Saul was blind in the natural, the scripture says he was seeing in the spirit. So Saul has a vision of something that takes place. And then it goes on to describe this believer, Ananias. In verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may, might regain his sight. Now, again, Saul's blind, but he's seeing in visions. And even more so, Ananias is having a vision in which Jesus tells him Saul's having a vision. 
I mean, this is like visionception here. There's beautiful things in the scripture and you should look for them. So Ananias has a vision in which the Lord says that Saul is having a vision. The Lord tells Ananias to go pray for Saul. Um, and that not only had Saul been persecuting the church, but now God, Jesus, is going to show Saul how he himself might suffer. So he's going from being blind in the, in the uh, spiritual to seeing, being uh, seeing in the natural to being blind, going from being religious, a hater of God, to a child of God, going from being a murderer, persecuting, to one who will be persecuted for the sake of the name. This is a total radical turn. So Ananias entered the house. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now in Saul's life, uh, this comes as an extreme shock to him. He, he was a man that studied under the best Pharisees, under the best teachers. He had uh, lived his life as uh, completing the whole law. And in fact, at one point in the scriptures, he, he says that he had done the law from his youth. And there's absolutely no indication that that's not true. Now, obviously, no one does the entire law in their heart of hearts, but Saul was an extremely zealous Jew. He was attempting to obtain righteousness by the doing of the law, which the Bible is clear over and over again that that's not how righteousness comes to a person. So Saul stays with the disciples at Damascus after he's healed, and um, it's actually the case that he begins not only to uh, be be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures, but he makes disciples. And in so doing, um, Saul begins to proclaim Christ almost immediately. So Saul's mind is completely renewed by the Holy Spirit to understand what the scriptures speak about Christ. Again, as I mentioned last week, the goal of our search to rediscover the Old Testament is to see what it says about Christ. And that is based on the apostles' example in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, as they quote it, as well as Christ saying that everything from Moses to the prophets speaks about me. Um, so Saul's mind is renewed by the Holy Spirit to understand what the scriptures speak about Christ and the pro prophecies concerning the Messiah in the scriptures and their fulfillment of in the life of Christ proves the claims of Christianity that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And notice I said the word prove. In Acts 9, 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. This isn't talking about physical strength. This is talking about his reasoning skills, his ability to argue with those who know the scripture and to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah and is proved by the next phrase and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. That's exactly similar language to what Peter and John and Stephen had experienced. It says that the Jews could not contend with the wisdom and the power that Stephen was speaking uh, with, the wisdom and the spirit. And so Paul, Paul does the same thing. He's totally converted. And then it says, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Apparently, it is something that can be proven from the Old Testament. It is not a theory 
that Christ is found in the Old Testament. According to this verse, it's something that can be reasoned about and the debate can be won and settled. So Saul begins to preach in Damascus and he stirs up a contention with the Jews again. They come up with a plan to kill him. He's let down in a basket. And then Saul goes to Jerusalem and immediately seeks out the fellowship of the rest of the disciples. This is proof that he is a true child of God. He wishes to be with the people of God. That is, that is one of the ways in which it is proved that someone has come to, to know God through Christ, is they have a desire to be with the disciples. So Paul goes out, goes both he both in and out from them. It says he went in and he went out. That is, he was amongst the disciples, uh, speaking in their assemblies, like a you know a church meeting, and he also went out and into the different parts of the city and reasoned about how Jesus was the Messiah. And so the Paul, the fruit of of Saul's ministry is clear. Acts 9.31, coming to the end, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What had taken place in Acts 2, in the city of Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit came, and then it says that they began to share things in common and to fellowship together day by day. It then says that they were... uh, strengthened in the Lord, and and he was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So again, that pattern that we talked about last week, Jesus in Acts 1, right before his ascension, he makes a, a prophetic decree that says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses, you'll be clothed with power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what has taken place in Jerusalem, and then it moves on to Judea and Samaria. The Holy Spirit in the previous chapters came, and then the, and then the book of Acts has this summary verse. It says, and in all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they had peace, and it was being built up. So this begins to show in the book of Acts, the gospel's moving out. It's going to go out to the Gentiles in a complete way. And that's where Saul's life uh, takes us. Now, um, Saul disappears for quite a number of chapters, and we could talk about that later. But what I want to show you is this chapter demonstrates the things that we said before. He made a change from his, from the heart. He was a murderer and a thief, and he, he now is a lover of the Jews and the Gentiles, and he wishes to, to proclaim the gospel. He was someone who was blind in the spirit, but now he sees the Lord, recognizes the Lord's authority, and has begun to do and to obey what the Lord says. He said, Jesus told him to go into the city, and then I'll show you what to do. And so Saul did that. He begins to obey Christ. He's baptized in water, the the outward sign that a belie- that someone has come to be a believer, that is, they obey Jesus. They, they get baptized. It's a, it's a spiritual event. It is a mystical and wonderful thing. And he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then instantly, he begins to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and make disciples. Now, one of the things that you have to realize is the book of Acts takes some time uh, to play out. Um, it feels like, when if you just read it from page to page, that everything takes place in just like a few years. It's actually the case that this chapter spans a few years because the Bible doesn't use um, 
inferior language, and it mentions that Saul had disciples in the city of Damascus. So there is some reason to believe that it takes some time for a Christian to go through these phases. However, it doesn't take 10 years. This passage probably describes a year or two, maybe maybe two. But he, it says later on that he instantly, uh, after he was converted, he went up to Jerusalem and then left. There's evidence that this was a short amount of time, a year or two, not a decade or two. This should be the experience of, of your life when you come to Christ. And it, if it's not, which I admit it hasn't been in my life this, uh, you should strive for that. But once that happens, once you become someone who, who's able to share the gospel in, a, in an easy way, take someone through a Bible study, pray for them, these kind of things, once that takes place, you should be aiming towards this all the more every day. So as we go into this season of evangelism, it's important for us to have this experience. I'm convinced that Saul had one of the greatest encounters uh, in the New Testament with the resurrected Jesus. And that in, in some way, the fruit of Saul's ministry is not, not only a sovereignty of God thing, it certainly is, but it also is an effect of seeing Christ for who he is. And I'm convinced that you can have spiritual visions, but, in, but I wouldn't wait around for the Lord to take you up as it were. I would start diving into the scriptures to find Christ in all of his glory in this way, and to see what God has done through his son, Jesus. So with that, let's close.